listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Today on Civil War Talk Radio, we're talking with Richard P. McMurray, who knows which two people are most responsible for Confederate defeat. Join us when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. With our guest today, Richard McMurray, author of Two Great Rebel Armies, as well as The Fourth Battle of Winchester Toward a New Civil War Paradigm, and numerous other works on the American Civil War. Richard, uh, we were talking in our first session uh, today about some of the things that might have happened differently, and we were getting to the Atlanta campaign, and I threw out for you the old theory that Johnson would have held it uh, but who had lost it, and you, you cogently argue that would not have been the case. In other writing, you have pointed out uh, that there are several people specifically more responsible than others for the Confederates not winning the Civil War. And I said that during the teas between sessions, uh, who, who are the two people most responsible for Confederate defeat. Instead of stringing our listeners along, let me ask you that question up front. Who are they? I would pick... First off, Jefferson Davis for his neglect of matters in the West. And second, as I mentioned earlier, Leonidas Polk, the Confederate general who violated Kentucky neutrality in September 1861 and then spent the time from the spring of 1862 until his death in June 1864, essentially disobeying orders and leading a cabal against the commander of his army, who for most of that period was General Braxton Bragg. 
And if you look at the internal workings of the Confederate Army in the West, it is, a, a, it's Steve Woodworth has called it, a pit of vipers in the political fighting, the infighting among the Confederates. It would disgrace a modern university faculty. With oh, that's the, saying something. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, they, they, it, it sure is. But the, the Confederate Army of Tennessee was, was just a mess. And I think it stemmed ultimately from, first off, from Polk's leading this, essentially a revolt of the generals against Bragg, and second, from Jefferson Davis's refusal to face up to that and try to deal with it, so that the situation just got worse and worse as time went along. And it didn't stop with Polk's death in June 1864. By the time he died, this had just been ingrained deeply into the Army's the psyche into the body politic, as it were, of the army, and it continued with factions and rivalries going on all through the army, and it just undermined any real effort the Confederates could have made to to prevent losing the war in the West. Now, let me push you on that. The uh, they, they say with academic politics, the fights are so vicious because the stakes are so small, uh, but. In the Army of Tennessee, the stakes are pretty high. You're looking at the survival of the Confederacy, and they're not able to pull themselves together uh, enough to to overlook their personal difficulties. But let me contrast that with the people that they're fighting against, the Army of the Cumberland, or the Army of the Ohio, as it's originally called. That is no band of brothers either at the top. You've got Don Carlos Buell in command through 1862, and you've got people intriguing to get him replaced by Alexander McCook. You've got George Thomas being appointed to replace Buell, then turning it down in 1862 in October. Uh, you, you, I don't know if it's a nest of vipers, but at least it's a nest of garden snakes. <laughs> maybe, maybe cottonmouths or something. No, I guess cottonmouths would have to be... That, they'd be pretty deadly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would, I would say, Jerry, there are two things on that. First off, Given a weakness in the Confederate Army and an identical weakness in the Union Army, they would cancel out, and you would go back to some other factors. The Union Army was bigger, better supplied, uh, all of that. So if the two are the same, then it's going to hurt the Confederates more than it hurts the Federals. Mm-hmm. And the second point I would make on, with regard to that observation is that in the Union Army, the Union Army that accomplished the most in the early part of the war was the Army of the Tennessee, right. which was the Halleck, Grant, Sherman, McPherson Army at Fort Donelson and Shiloh, excuse me, in Vicksburg, whereas the Army of the Cumberland under Buell and then under Rosecrans eventually got its act together and managed to occupy Nashville after the Confederates evacuated and maneuver the Confederates out of Chattanooga. But what really happened in the West as the war went on and Lincoln realized that he had in Grant somebody upon whom he could depend, Lincoln supported Grant, and Grant supported Sherman when Sherman replaced Grant in the West so that if a problem developed between Sherman and one of his generals, Sherman had support from the top. If a problem developed between Braxton Bragg and one of his generals, Bragg had no support. So that when Polk stabbed Bragg in the back, as he did frequently 
Jefferson Davis did not support Bragg. When Joseph Hooker, who was a commander, a corps commander in Sherman's army in 1864, tried to stab Sherman in the back, Hooker found himself removed from command and sent off back to the north so that Sherman had support from the people above him, Grant, Secretary of War, Stanton, Lincoln. Bragg, in trying to deal with Polk, did not have similar support, nor did Joseph E. Johnston, who replaced Bragg. So that the Confederate problem with this internal fighting was much more serious than on the Federal side. And on the Confederate side, owing to the weakness of the Confederate Army, it hurt the Confederacy a lot more. And that's ironic. I guess that brings us back to Jefferson Davis as, as one of the sources of Confederate defeat, because he's often accused of supporting Bragg too much. He did not. Um, well, he's Mac- not, he didn't replace him when he, when he might have done so earlier. No, but replacing Bragg in and of itself wouldn't have done any good if Polk was still there. Hmm. Um, Grady McWhinney, in his biography of Braxton Bragg, makes the point that Davis and Bragg really were not that close. People think they were close because during the Mexican War they were together a bit. Uh, Davis's first father-in-law, Zachary Taylor, is supposed to have given the famous command to Bragg a little more great Captain Bragg during, I believe it was the Battle of Buena Vista uh, during the Mexican War. But as McQuinney points out, that Davis and Bragg were just not that close. And it was what, what got Bragg favorably to Davis's attention was Bragg's work at Pensacola in the first summer of the war. But when Bragg was in command and got into arguments with Polk, Davis either did not get involved in it at all or he supported Polk. Usually what he would do is say, I know I can count on you, to put the cause of the Confederacy ahead of personal matters and then go off and Davis would then go off and do something else and Bragg and Polk would go back to their fighting. Now, so, so he did not exercise the, the kind of forceful command necessary to, to, to resolve those difficulties? No, what, what Davis would have to have done was to make a choice between Bragg and Polk. And he did not do that until late in 1863. And even then, he sent Polk away from the Army and brought back to the Army General William J. Hardee, who had previously been with the Army and who was one of Polk's uh, co-conspirators against Bragg. So Davis really didn't resolve the problem. He just shuffled the troublemakers around. And then only... After Bragg suffered the disaster at Missionary Ridge, did Davis get rid of Bragg and replace him with Joseph E. Johnston, who had his own disagreements with both Polk, who came back to the Army, and with Hardee. So it's just this mess where, essentially, unless Davis were really willing to put somebody out there and back the man up, then the Confederates in the West were going to keep this up until they brought destruction themselves. This, I might add, parenthetically, jumping around in chronological order, this is why I think the death of Albert Sidney Johnston was so important. Albert Sidney Johnston was the one Confederate general in the West with whom I think Davis would have worked in harmony, the one Confederate general in the West whom Davis would have trusted, 
and probably the one Confederate general in the West whom Davis would have supported to the limits of his quite considerable ability. Davis's ability, not Johnston's. So so Johnston would have had the the stature to subdue the the, the bickering within the Western Army. Albert Sidney Johnston would have. Because of Jefferson Davis's admiration for him, and I think it's intriguing. You talk about counterfactual history. What if Albert Sidney Johnston had lived and Davis would have had a general in the West with whom he could have worked as he came to work with Robert E. Lee in Virginia? You know, suppose it was Joseph E. Johnston who was killed instead of Albert Sidney Johnston. Then that that really is uh, an interesting possibility because you have, as you said, if the two sides have the same advantage in leadership in the North wins because they have more people, more logistical support. In the East, where the North still has those advantages, you've got Lee operating against a series of unsuccessful Union generals. What about the thought that the Confederacy would have done better than than it had if they had taken troops away from the unsuccessful Western Army and shipped them East, instead of the reverse, sending Longstreet out uh, out west in 1863. What if they had sent, uh, you know, Kirby Smith to, to Virginia? Uh, well, Kirby Smith by himself wouldn't have done much. You mean Kirby Smith and maybe 10,000 troops? Well, and, and his best friends. That's right. Um, take a division or two with him. That is an intriguing possibility. Lee, you may remember when he went north to what became Gettysburg tried to draw more troops from the South Atlantic coast. He wanted to organize an army under Beauregard to hover in northern Virginia to threaten Washington. And I, I, I kind of think that that may well have been the greatest possibility the Confederates had to win a victory that would have forced the North to accept Confederate independence as opposed to just wearing down the North and eventually the North would acquiesce in it. Had the Confederates pull troops out of the West, told whoever was in command in the West, just delay things as long as you can while we try to win in Virginia, and we'll see what happens. And if we can't do that, we'll quit because there's no point in going on. But again, we're back to counterfactual history, and there's no way to, no way to prove it one way or the other. No. Now, you suggest the idea that had there been enough troops or additional troops in the Gettysburg campaign, there might have been some opportunity for a victory that would do more than just wear down the north like another Fredericksburg but really force negotiations I don't I don't know if I see that as a possibility under any circumstances that any battlefield result could ever have brought the north to that um, well again you can argue it either way but suppose the Confederates win a great victory with a very strong army at say Antietam and the Union Army has to evacuate Maryland to go back into Pennsylvania. The federal government flees Washington, D.C., as it did in the War of 1812. Uh, Jefferson Davis moves the Confederate capital north to the Potomac. Maryland, then with a Confederate legislature, secedes. Bragg is in Kentucky. Um, you know, you can, you can, I can conjure up an, uh, a scenario under which that could have happened particularly with the elections coming up in the North in the fall of 1862. You could have had a massive repudiation of the Lincoln administration in the midterm elections. I, I, I could see it. It's far-fetched, but I could, I could see it happening. 
I, I suppose I, I might argue the weak link in the scenario is is the battlefield victory itself, because when you look at all the battles of the Civil War, none of them result in an army being destroyed on the field except Nashville. And True. My, I have long argued that, that Civil War battles were inherently indecisive. There was just... Uh, the, the writers like to talk about how close it was if only uh, Jackson hadn't stood like a stone wall, if, if only they had gone around the hornet's nest at Shiloh, if only this, if only that. They would have had a decisive victory. Back, back to counterfactual history. I, and I just don't see it happening because you, you can't have it. You can't have it the same way twenty times, where it's always a close call but never happens. Then it's not really a close call. It's just that's how it's always going to be. Uh, so I, I don't see where you could have a decisive battle where, where you destroy the enemy army in a Waterloo fashion on the field. Again, with the exception of Nashville, where Hood's army is is already. A fragile instrument by that time. What if Pope's John Pope's army does not have a refuge in Washington after the Second Battle of Manassas? That's a, that, that, that's an interesting thought. I mean, they, they do flee from the the battlefield in, in considerable disarray. But uh, or, or, go ahead. Or for that matter, the First Battle of Manassas in McDowell's army. Well, I, I would argue there that nothing does happen because. Uh, the Confederate army is in no shape to pursue. They're they're just as disorganized and confused by this this baptism of fire at First Bull Run, uh, as the Union army is shocked by losing it. And and I think that's that's part of the argument is that the combat is so traumatic for both sides that in a major battle that it's not the the the, the pigheadedness of, of say Meade at Gettysburg that causes him not to pursue. It's that his army's been shattered. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, you can, you know, that's certainly a valid observation about the ability of a Civil War army to defend itself, but a lot of times after an unsuccessful battle, when that happened, it was because the army had a refuge. You know, I'm thinking of Rosecrans' army, for example, back in Chattanooga. Um, I mentioned Pope and mm-hmm. Washington after Second Manassas. Uh, I, I could see that happening if, as we postulated to start with, Lee's army was reinforced by significant numbers of troops from the West. Maybe not Kirby Smith, maybe somebody like Patrick Claiborne or Bedford Forrest. Mm-hmm. That's a thought. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, again, you know, we're just getting into things that we cannot you know, cannot reach any sort of definitive conclusion about, but certainly as things worked out, armies did not, in most cases, have the ability to win a decisive victory and to put the enemy's army away. And sometimes that was because the enemy army or parts of it were able to hold together and form some kind of very strong rear guard, and at other times it was because the defeated army had a refuge somewhere like Pope's in Washington. Well, that, that, that does make sense, and you do have that present again at, at most battles. Well, let me, let's me let pull back from the, the counterfactual to uh, some solid historical grounding for a moment. You edited or co-edited a book some years ago of a collection of letters of an Indiana soldier. Uh, George, George Squires. George yeah. Squires of 44th Indiana. 
and the the letters themselves are collected at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I worked for a number of years. And I recalled, I found them in the archive there one day and, and was reading them and thought, this is just fascinating. And I think it was before the publication came out. I'm just curious, I, I think they're one of the better sets of private soldier letters uh, to be published. I'm curious how you came across them. Actually, I did not come across them. One of my co-editors, John David Smith, who was then at North Carolina State, actually he and I were both teaching at North Carolina State at the time. Uh, I was an adjunct professor there then. He was the one who got the letters and wanted to publish them and asked me and Julie Doyle to work with him as co-editors. So if you want to know how he happened to come across them, I'm sorry, you'll have to ask him. I, I think he was uh, friends with Mark Neely. Yes, he was. And I'm had, sure he is, yes. And, and is, yes. And, and Mark was at that time the director of the Lincoln Museum until the early 90s. So uh, everybody, uh, there's, there's always these connections here where people uh, end up linked together through through circumstances. But that's something else I will recommend to those those listeners who enjoy the, the primary source material. Uh, Squire's letters really do make uh, interesting reading. It gives insight into a particular volunteer's uh, political and motivations as well as some good battlefield description. Uh, it, it, it's quite a good book. So uh, you, you've edited letters, you've written biographies, you've uh, theorized about the, uh, some, some of these interesting counterfactuals as a way of highlighting the importance of the Western theater. Uh, what are you working on presently, if anything? Well, I've got a, another set of letters that I edited that the University of Alabama Press is going to publish. They're the letters of a Confederate cavalry officer named George Knox Miller. He was a law student at the University of Virginia when the war started. He went home to Talladega, Alabama, joined the local cavalry company, which became a part of the 8th Confederate Cavalry Regiment that served with the Army of Tennessee. He married his second cousin about halfway through the war, and almost all of the letters in the collection are letters that he wrote to her, both as his fiancée and then as his wife, they give, I think, some wonderful insights and pictures into several of the major Western battles, particularly Shiloh and the Atlanta campaign. Uh, Miller was captured early in 1863, spent about three months in uh, various federal prisons, uh, Fort Delaware in Delaware, for example, and uh, several others, describes prison life in some detail. The collection has an 1895 letter from Felix H. Robertson, who was a Confederate general on whom not very much has been written. In which Richard, I'm going to step in just for a second here because we do need to take another short break. But we're going to come back and talk more with Richard McMurray about uh, new letter collections, uh, old letter collections, and more in general about the Civil War when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.